0: The writing of this particular letter, Um, the reason for the writing is really given in verse 32 through 39, that these are Christians who had been uh, seemingly Christians for quite some time and had experienced a lot of hard things in their past and had done really well in their faith, but at this point had seemed to be withdrawing from their faith in alarming ways. And this letter is written, you remember in chapter 13, at the very end, uh, another kind of anchoring verse in chapter 13 verse 22 he really urges them to bear with quote unquote this word of exhortation and we, t- we talked multiple times about how the idea of an exhortation is to put to mind and to like call to one side and ultimately the hebrew writer isn't calling the reader to his own side he's calling the reader to jesus's side which kind of following a domino effect leads us to what I think is the theme verse for the entire letter, which is in chapter 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Ultimately, the Hebrew writing is a letter of exhortation trying to urge Christians who are suffering, who are withdrawing from God because of the ongoing weariness involved in that suffering. It's urging them to see Jesus and their suffering more clearly, and it's urging them to engage their minds thoughtfully and deeply, thinking about scripture in a living way, thinking about God's works in a deeper way. And there's meat in this letter that isn't teaching them some new doctrine they haven't understood before, but instead we looked at last time in chapters 9 and the beginning of 10. Really the writer is just portraying a broader picture of some pretty fundamental concepts. You've got the sacrifice of Jesus, You've got the blood of Jesus and the giving of his body. But what the writer is doing is he's trying to portray more deeply how vital these concepts are to understand in a way that would compel the reader through their suffering to not lose hope and not to grow weary, even in the condition of their suffering, without escaping their suffering. I think something to maybe grasp how important this is, a way to really demotivate somebody or to slow somebody down, you think about even a runner. With a runner, you just exhaust them. You could end up putting more weight on a runner, and that could easily make it so that they just get tired and stop. You could end up putting, you know uh, weights on their you know waist, weights on their legs. Um, you could just end up having them run for so long they can't take anymore. And that really seems like the condition where the Hebrews were. These Christians had been running the race for a long time. And it just seems like they were getting weighed down without realizing how their suffering was actually a way of God to liberate them rather than weigh them down. So we're going to see that in chapter 10, 19 through the end of the chapter. So mind you, these are strong exhortations that are going to be application-based, that are being given to people who are actively suffering, and the solution to their suffering has not been to look for physical relief or to wait for deliverance physically so that they can finally be put at physical rest. The exhortation is to consider Jesus more deeply and to continue to serve God with even greater resolution even in the midst of their suffering. So I've titled this section Living Work to Living Work. Chapter 10, uh, 18 really ends the section that I think is dealing with understanding the work that God has done in Jesus and the work that Jesus is doing right now as our active high priest. And the idea of living work to living work is the idea that God has done this living work so that we, in response, will respond in a living way. And we'll see how to respond in a living way, I think most especially in verse 19 through 25. So before we start reading, this has kind of an interesting outline um, I think there are models of some words that refer to our relationship with each other that I think are used pretty commonly in the Bible. One is a word we've already seen in chapter 13, verse 22, exhortation. The idea of being stirred to action or being called to one side, we see that in 1925 that it's like a, it's like a model of what an exhortation looks and sounds like. Verse 26 through 31 is an admonition. An admonition usually involves trying to stir action through a strong warning. And then 32 through 39 is more encouragement. So we'll see a model of what encouragement looks like in verse 32 through 39. So we'll see that he's really trying to strongly motivate them by encouraging them at the end. So again, just kind of a neat outline of these different concepts of encouragement that we see in this, this section. So let's start by looking at verses 19 through 25 and and see how the writer, to kind of carry the letter forward after outlining God's work in Jesus, how does he transition into application initially here? Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." So I think to maybe illustrate this to help with seeing how this is very motivating, if you've been around downtown Savannah a little bit, maybe you've seen people who on street corners are like holding up signs, um, asking for like food or money. Um, I want you to imagine if somebody who is actively doing that, like what if somebody ended up bringing them into their car, giving them a job that was fully within their capabilities, that was more than minimum wage, let's say this job paid way more than enough for them, like they were able to not only live reasonably but abundantly, gives them this new job, is willing to give them training on this job, let's say he gives them a nice vehicle and offers even to pay for gas, so says, you know what, here's the vehicle, I'll cover gas, I'll even cover insurance for the vehicle. So this person is being equipped in every way to have a completely changed life. What if you knew all of that had been given to that person, all of it, and you knew it, and you saw this person on the corner again, not using the car, not using the job they were given, just kind of ignoring everything that had been given and continuing to just go on with his life the way it was before? You know, it would be just almost, it would take your breath away with how shocking something like that would be. And the idea is if you appreciate the gifts that are given to you that are meant to be used, it doesn't nullify grace that there's some kind of responsibility to use it. In fact, it heightens the grace because of the reformation that's involved in that, the changes that those gifts are potentially going to bring into your life. And that's like the transition here. So verse 19 through 22 is really outlining a summary of everything that's been said before that God has given these incredible gifts to us in Jesus Christ. The blood of of Jesus' body has been shed. His body itself has been given so that we could enter through the veil of his flesh into the most holy place. We've been washed with water. Our consciences have been cleansed. We have Jesus as a great high priest over the house of God. So all of these things have been given as these extraordinary gifts, but these are meant to equip us to respond. They're meant to equip us, look at verse, um, Oh, where did it go? In verse 20, by a new and living way. So the idea is everything that God has done is meant to put us in an entirely new direction and to equip us to not only have the capacity to understand that direction, but to also have the resolve to continue to move on even when things get difficult. So there's three applications that he makes here. There's three let us statements that are made here. Um, Look at verse uh, 22. It's the first statement. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. That's a statement that was made earlier in the book. If you remember in chapter 5, it mentions, or I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 4 leading into chapter 5, one of the applications of Jesus' priesthood was that we can draw near to God to receive mercy and grace in times of need. It's a similar application being made here, that because of what God has done, we know that God wants us to draw close. But I think the idea of a good conscience and a sincere heart and full assurance of faith is we're not just drawing near on our own terms. We're drawing near in a way where we're recognizing who God really is and what it is he's really trying to give and do. So I've interacted with some people, particularly with Bible studies where because of their mentality, what they're looking for in recognizing that there's some kind of religious Christian thing that's happening here, when they recognize that, sometimes what people will do is they'll say they want to have a Bible study, but they'll kind of use that like a carrot on a stick. And they'll kind of dangle that, but they'll be really looking for physical generosity. So they'll want money, they'll want food, and they'll kind of use the Bible study as a way of getting things. And if if there's at any point during these interactions a point where, you know, I would maybe say, I think maybe what we need to do here is stop focusing on physical things and really make sure our focus is on the word, most of the times the interactions at that point completely end, right? Because there's desires in the other person that are overtaking their ability to even recognize me for who I am or what it is I'm actually trying to give. And that really is just a reflection of how I am with God. Oftentimes when I draw near to God, it's not with a good conscience. It's not with a sincere heart, and it's not in full assurance of faith. And what the the writer is exhorting is that I need to go to God in a full, humble, sincere recognition of who God really is and what his mission is for me in my life. Just like this morning, God's call is very specific. And really, since God has outlined his call, the authority to actually invent the call is not on me anymore. And so I have to surrender myself to the glory of his call. And God's call is grander, it's greater, it's more impactful than anything I could invent in my own mind to think what God wants to do with me. Same thing here, that I'm surrendering to the will of God in recognition of his will over my own and even at the expense of my will. The next let us is in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Again, something similar was said already in chapter 6. So you remember in chapter 6 he exhorted the the reader to think about Abraham, that God wanting to show the children, the heirs of the promise, so much more the, the faithfulness and unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath by that there are two things in which it is impossible for God to lie, God swore by oath to Abraham, right? And so with that hope, the writer goes on to say, we have as an anchor for the soul. I think the idea of holding fast this confession is recognizing that my hope is not based on earthly comfort. My hope is not based in earthly ease. My hope is not based in things attaining to my own sense of ideal. It's not in me getting things that I wish I could have that I don't seem to have right now. Ultimately, my hope is based in a very fundamental confession. I am a sinner. That Jesus was sent to the earth to suffer for and to die for, to rescue me from that condition. And rescuing me from that condition was done with a view that ultimately God would redeem me into heaven. And that Jesus is my interceding priest, sent on a mission to rescue me from this earthly life and to bring me into heavenly citizenship and to redeem me into the place where God is. So the Hebrew writers need to recognize that in their suffering, God was actually fulfilling the work of that hope and fulfilling the confession of that hope, not neglecting it. Third thing is verse 24 and 25, and I want to spend just a little bit more time on this. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds Not forsaking your own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day of drawing near. Again, this is very similar to uh, an instruction in chapter 3, verse 13, where he says, encourage one another day after day. Hebrews 13 will make much more specific applications of love and encouragement. I think what the writer is doing in these first chapters before getting to that conclusion is really trying to build a desire to apply the principle. Obviously, there's a series of ways, a diversity of ways to apply encouraging others. But really, fundamentally, what I need to have is an instigated desire to just even want to do that. And if I can be put in a position where I'm eager to stimulate others to love and good deeds then those other applications have much more meaningful application in my life when I have that will. So what does this mean? In verse 24, this word to stimulate in the New American Standard, it's really a very interesting word that's only used twice in the New Testament. The only other time it's used is in the book of Acts. Do you remember Paul and Barnabas when they had a disagreement about uh, Mark whether or not Mark should go with them in ministering the gospel, they had a sharp disagreement. There was a sharp contention. And it was so sharp that they actually separated ways. Um, It's the same word. The idea is actually to provoke to the point of irritation, to create some kind of contention, to pull at passion. Obviously, this is not being used in a negative context at all. This, in turn, is actually a very positive application of that word. So it's the idea of when we come together, there's a sense of resolve where I want others to leave with this sense of like indignation or irritation of something's got to be done. Like, I can't leave here and just not do anything. There's got to be some sense of fiery resolve of feeling necessity to apply God's will. That I want to do God's will with more passion than when I came in today. That when I interact with you, when I'm finished with that interaction, it should fill me with a greater desire to want to love and serve. So how do we do this? There are different members who each respond differently, right? So I don't think it's just one way that we stir people up to love and good works. Some people are so discouraged and so disheartened that they just need time and encouragement and gentleness and attention, and that itself will stir them up with a resolve to serve just by simply receiving a gentle touch and mercy. There are some people who are hiding sin, and what they need is someone to help them to see that sin, but also to help them to see that there's forgiveness and reconciliation through repentance. There's some people who are already passionate in wanting to serve and just a scriptural conversation or just a word of encouragement about that could really stir them up to want to go to action. I think some other methods are seen in the next sections, verse 26 through 31. Sometimes talking about the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of our relationship with God can be very stirring. Verse 32 through 39, talking about our our responsibility as Christians and how God is concerned and cares about what we do in faith, how God recognizes what we do in faith, but also recognizing what we are doing can be very motivating. And I think we'll see that very clearly at the end of chapter 10, that the writer is not only aware of very specific ways that these Christians have served, but he wants them to remember that God is also aware and will not forget what they have done. It's also a method of encouragement at the end of chapter 6 as well he mentions that God is not so unjust as to forget what they had done in the past, right? So thoughtfulness and consideration, what do people specifically need? I think maybe an even more specific way of applying this. Our assemblies are oftentimes an opportunity to see brethren we don't see at any other time. And I think something that can be helpful in in distinctively applying this is working with your spouse or by yourself to think about one person and really how to encourage one person to have more resolve or encouragement to serve the Lord. And Just trying to think, like, what, what can help this person have a deeper sense of motivation to want to serve the Lord? Because this is talking about considering how to stimulate, right? So how can I stimulate this person to be stirred up to love and good works? And in verse 25 at the end, you notice that as I grow in my faith and more vividly set my eyes on Jesus and the nearness of my hope seems clearer and clearer, this resolve and consideration ought to be growing in my heart as a result. So 26 through 31, let's look at this admonition that's made here as well. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a terrifying expectation of judgment, and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which, by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, interesting thing real quick. The Hebrew writer threads his letter with very seemingly harsh admonitions, but he does something interesting in chapter 6 that he does also at the end of this chapter. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. So he talks about how, like, you know, people who fall away and like everything that God has done is apparently not good enough to motivate them to serve him. And he says, you know, it's impossible to renew them to repentance and how ground that just eats up resources from the rain and yields nothing but thorns and thistles is going to be cursed. Verse 9, he says, well, beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you. So he follows it saying like, I know I'm speaking hard here, but I'm sure that this one not to you. So he does the same in verse 39, the very end of the chapter. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the perseverance of the soul, right? I think it's kind of like when a child um, misbehaves and the parent has done well to constantly reinforce positive thinking in the child about their sense of identity so that when they step away from that identity, you can say "This, this is really not who you are, right? Like you don't need to let this decision you're making here Define who you are. And that's the same with the Christians being written to here. I think it's very motivating to first recognize the seriousness of sin and the consequences, but then to also recognize that because of God's grace, we don't need to feel like when we sin that ultimately now we're trapped in this cage that we can't get out of, right? So just thinking a little more specifically about the idea of sinning willfully. This is not talking about being just weak or immature, needing to grow. This isn't talking about somebody who's trying to serve God and they're doing it very imperfectly, right? This isn't talking about somebody who's trying really hard and really humbly to overcome sin that they want to escape and they're, they're seeking deliverance from. I think this is talking about somebody who wants to hide sin in their life and they're willing to go on and accept that without repenting or being humble-hearted about it. In Numbers, this is called like a high-handed sin, this idea of like a stubborn sin. So if Jesus' sacrifice, as it's been established in chapters 9 and 10, is all there is. There's that one sacrifice for all time. As he said in chapter 6, if all this work that God has done to magnify the love of God in Christ and in his sacrifice, if the value of that sacrifice, the love within that sacrifice, is not enough to motivate us to live in a new way with zeal, there's really nothing left. There's no other sacrifice that's going to be any other motivating or heart-changing. All the writer can do is reapply the admonition and application from that sacrifice all over again. And if that's not going to cut it, then there's nothing that can cut it, right? So all he's doing again is fundamentally saying, this is all there is, and this is more than enough. So look what he says. Trampled underfoot... The Son of God in verse 29 I don't know if some of you have heard of these Black Friday like riots where people like, it seems like it always happens at Walmart, people like trample in because they want like a sale for like 10 dollars off of a blender or something, and like people die because they get trampled by the crowd rushing in. And you have to imagine if somebody doesn't if they're not aware that they've stepped on somebody and, like, broken their neck because they're in this crowd almost like just like a rabid animal trying to get this discount, does that exempt them from having done something evil, right? In fact, it almost makes it worse. Like, how could you not know? You literally, like, were crushing somebody on your way in. You know, so the fact that they didn't know doesn't exempt them. In a lot of ways, it makes it worse. And that's the point here. We know Jesus and how he suffered. In verse 27 and 28, on the law of Moses, which had shadows of the sacrifice of Jesus, but that was all, just shadows. And if people were punished without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses for that, well, how much worse can we be expected to be accounted by the Father for disregarding his son, right? So you have the testimony, the witness of Jesus, the testimony of his blood, but then you have the testimony of the Spirit. So that's two witnesses that you have. Even to, to insult, I think, carries with it the idea of devaluing. Um, I think most often, if not all the time, the idea of an, of an insult is to devalue somebody, right? Like in some kind of statement about a person, whether it's a joke or whatever, to insult is generally to devalue someone's worth devalue their thinking, devalue their ability, devalue just who they are as a person, devalue their appearance. So when it's talking about the spirit of grace, remember in Ephesians 3, Paul talked about the unfathomable riches in Christ. These unfathomable riches in grace that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. People who like riotously plunge into Walmart and people die because they're being trampled the idea is they're so fixated on the value of one thing, they totally ignore the value of the other, and that's why these stories about Black Friday riots resulting in death, like they become like Facebook famous and all that. They get like, um, oh, there's like a a word for internet fame. Um, it's because we recognize how silly that is. Like because you wanted a discount on an item, you devalued the life of a person. Like the madness. But that's the point here is God has given us grace in his spirit, a grace that can be easily taken for granted and devalued. And the appeal is if we cannot value the grace given by God's spirit, then it shows that our focus is like those people in those riots. We are fixated on the wrong value and in the process have insulted the spirit of grace. Third witness is in verse 30 and 31, the father. You have these three witnesses, which makes the punishment absolute. We can count on it in verse 31, that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We've confessed by being baptized into Christ that God is a living God. He is the Father of Jesus Christ, and Jesus came to represent the Father. And the idea is we know that God is a God of vengeance. Otherwise, why would we ever have fear of sin? Why would I ever recognize I need forgiveness of sin? because we recognize that there will be vengeance for sin. So the witness of the Son, the witness of the Spirit, and the witness of the Father testify to the seriousness of sin. And I think the idea is understanding the gravity of sin in a living way, not just in a way of I violated some kind of written code of law, but I have insulted God, I have trampled the Son, I have insulted the spirit of of grace. God, as a judge, is ready to vindicate the death of Jesus. When I understand the living nature and the embodiment of sin seen in Jesus' death, that motivates a serious and reverent passion in serving God. So lastly, let's look at 32 through 39, the idea of how does he then transition to finishing at least this section with encouragement? But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. So I love this for one People can change, right? Just because somebody has been faithful in the past doesn't mean they're going to be faithful forever. And that's obviously not necessarily a a positive thing to consider, but I think we do have to recognize, like, just because somebody may be faithful right now, it's not as if the rest of their life can just go on autopilot, and that guarantees their faithfulness for the rest of their lives. But if somebody, in maybe some kind of disappointing way, has withdrawn from God, Maybe even they've fully withdrawn from God. The Hebrew writer is saying, that person can change too, right? As long as somebody is drawing breath, if they've responded to God in the past, there is something in their heart that can be drawn from to continue to make that change again. So in verse 39, I'm, I'm just so encouraged by the hope of that statement. That even though he recognizes that the Hebrew Christians he's writing to are in a discouraging position, That's not the end of the story. They can be inspired to change still. So the way that he testifies to their works, I think there's an interesting and careful balance to this that is very encouraging and very important. In chapter 11, he's going to talk about in verse 6 that we can't please God without faith, and that if we come to God... We must believe that he is. But I think the second part of chapter 11, verse 6, is easy for me to say, and as soon as I'm done saying it, I never think about it again. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Did you know that for every single thing, every single thing that you do in faith, God has kept a careful record of each single thing and will reward each thing done by faith. You remember the scenes of judgment that Jesus portrayed, right? Like Matthew 25, where you've got the sheep and the goats being separated, and then the people are told, when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you visited me, etc., etc." And they say, Lord, when did we do these things? The idea is they hadn't been keeping a record, but God had been keeping a record. And you remember Jesus even saying, whoever gives to one of these little ones in my name, even a cup of cold water, it will not be forgotten, right? Seemingly insignificant, who cares kind of thing. Who's going to remember giving a cup of cold water to somebody? Well, God's going to remember that. The balance is, like in Matthew 25, those disciples being rewarded for their service They didn't walk up to judgment with the list of their works held on a sheet of paper in front of them and held up to God. You see that these were people in a condition where they really needed to be reminded of the value of what they had done because they were in danger of losing their reward. You imagine if you see somebody who's taken a college course with you and you're in a team project, right? And they begin losing their motivation for some reason as the class goes on and they've been getting A's the whole time. Think like, don't throw away your grade just because of this one thing. Like you're so, we're so close. And that's the idea here is if, if we've had endurance, God is so close, he's so near. If we just endure and hold on to our confession in humble faith, God is not going to fail to recognize what we've done. In the world, faith will always be devalued. That will be seen in chapter 11. You have Moses who suffered reproaches with the children of God instead of enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. And then the kind of passing quotation I made at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 32 of chapter 11 and 4, he talks about how so many suffered incredible losses because of their faith. And he concludes saying in verse 38, these are men of whom the world was not worthy. And that's why we need the exhortation, admonition, and encouragement that brings our focus back to Jesus. Jesus. Because when we see Jesus, we will see how much he values our humility, our vulnerability, our suffering. Our suffering in the world has no value and no relief. And something key to remember is that the world cannot offer relief from the problems that it is causing us. The world cannot relieve us. It cannot give us rest from the problems that it is putting on us. And the exhortation is, verse 39, draw closer, have greater resolve and greater endurance. So, how the writer recognizes their faith. Notice the similar nature of what he's bringing their attention to in verse 32 through 34. Every single thing involves love and loss. So, for one, they endured a great conflict of sufferings. So there's love for the Lord and loss coming as a result. Verse 33, how did that happen? Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, being shares with those who were so treated. Love and loss. Verse 34, showing sympathy to the prisoners and accepting joyfully the seizure of their property, knowing they have a better possession of a lasting well, one. Love and and loss. Faith is made most evident when serving God demands both love and loss. And that really is what's going to draw out of my heart whether or not my service to God is genuine. Whether or not I'm serving God just out of convenience and hobby, or whether or not this really is something that I'm willing to give my life for. When I am willing to lay down my life for the love of God and the love of his people. So the principle, I think, in this encouragement, seeing how close God is, seeing that God is an active deliverer, seeing that God's hope is right ahead of me, gives me the perspective that I need to confidently suffer losses when I'm rooted in the love of God. And so in chapter 13, I want you to look forward just briefly to, um, In verse 12 through 14, he makes a very strange, almost like vivid application that's different from all the other applications that he makes in chapter 13. He talks about the bodies of the sin sacrifices are taken outside the camp and their bodies are burned, and it's it's very strange. But then it says in verse 12, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And here I think is one of the grand statements of Hebrews. So, Let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The Hebrew writer is going to hammer on that point for the rest of the letter. What does it look like to seek the city which is to come? Look at verse 34 again in the end of the verse. Why were they willing to suffer love or loss because of their love? They recognized the possession they had ahead of them. He is going to hammer that in chapter 11. He's going to end chapter 12, talking about how we've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the myriad of angels, the church of the firstborn, and the spirit of the saints made perfect. It's going to keep hammering the point. We have a possession in heaven that gives context to all the losses we suffer here. So, if I'm distant from God, if I withdraw from God, if I'm not eager about that hope, if I'm not filled with a desire to cling to God because of these promises, this letter and the rest of the letter is designed to reinstigate that passion and perspective. Chapter 11 is a famous chapter with like the Faith Hall of Fame, and that's the whole point of these examples, is people who looked forward and ultimately acted in the present in extraordinary ways by God's grace. Because of the promises they were assured of that were ahead of them. So that's what we'll look at next time um, when we look at Hebrews again, Lord willing, I believe next week. Um, So if if you're here this morning and you recognize that you need exhortation or admonition or encouragement or need to respond in any way to the gospel um, or need to respond simply to to grow in your faith and, and have a renewed perspective of service through this coming week and and even today, please don't delay. Come while we send in and sing an imitation song.